With Australia's borders closed because of the pandemic, it's no wonder that migration is at an all-time low. And while you might be listening to this in Melbourne's snap lockdown, the COVID crisis provides a unique opportunity to reset Australia's skilled migration program. With me today to discuss their new report, Rethinking Permanent Skilled Migration After the Pandemic, is Economic Policy Program Director Brendan Coates and Senior Associate Will Mackey. Welcome, Brendan. Welcome, Will. Great, Kat. Now, migration really is an emotive issue. Migration policy has big impacts on all of us. But despite its importance, it's also an area of public policy that lacks a lot of public scrutiny. Grattan is planning to work more in this space in the next couple of years, starting with a new report on permanent skilled migration. Brendan, I'd really like to ask you, why focus on permanent skilled migration and why now? Uh, thanks, Kate. Well, the, the motivation for this report really is that permanent skilled migration is what matters in the long run. So where there's a big conversation about temporary migration, about how that drives in part the year to year flows in you know, how, who comes to Australia. So Australia runs, I should say, both a temporary program uh, that is uncapped and then a permanent program that is capped at 160,000 visas a year. But it's the permanent program that really drives who ends up staying in Australia long-term. So that's where it ultimately has the biggest impact on the well-being of the Australian people. Because who we select for permanent migration, particularly permanent skilled migration, which is the focus of this report, you know, it has enduring impacts. People who come here on permanent visas, they obtain the right to stay in Australia permanently. It does what it says on the tin. And so because of that, you know, who you choose for those positions has enduring impacts on the Australian community in the long term. Because uh, we, as we'll talk about, migration does have some big impacts. And that's why we focused here on the composition of the intake. That's actually the part of the story that we think is really, um, I suppose, uh, under-examined. We focus a lot on the size of the intake. You know, that's where the public narrative is. And to be honest, we don't really know what the ultimate size of the intake should be because that intake is going to vary from year to year based on the quality of the migrant pool. So if Australia looks better compared to other countries, then the optimal pool probably gets bigger. Uh, when Australia doesn't look as good compared to other countries or other countries do better, then the optimal intake should look smaller. And so that's why we're focusing in this report on the composition of the intake because there's some huge gains that you can get uh, that will benefit the Australian community if you get that intake right, if you select migrants, to select the best possible migrants from that fixed pool of permanent skilled migrants that we have, um, the visas that we have, that can have really big impacts on the Australian community. Now, I should say this work is in part being funded by the Susan McKinnon Foundation, uh, who have very generously um, given us a grant to help do this work. And we're hoping and certainly expected to do more in migration going forward. And I should mention that Henry Shirell, who um, is our Migration Policy Fellow, is responsible for quite a lot of the work here. Um, certainly, he's our in-house uh, visa guru and understands the system at a very detailed level in a way that, frankly, Will and I haven't had to grapple with. Um, Henry is off on parental leave following the, the birth of his little boy, Benji. So we wish him well if he does listen to this. Uh, otherwise, we look forward to seeing him back in the office or with us remotely in the next few weeks. We certainly wish Henry and his family very well. So an important question is how we think about migration as a country. You know, what should the purpose of skilled migration be? And who should we prioritise for permanent visas? You know, migration has lots of different objectives based on the different components of the, of the program. So we have both the skilled stream, which is basically 79,000 of those visas each year out of 160. 
We then have the family reunion stream, which obviously has quite a different set of objectives around making sure that um, Australians, if they meet a partner abroad, that person can become part of the Australian community. They can be granted permanent residency. And then we have a humanitarian program, which often does become the focus of migration, the public debate. That that program is both about meeting Australia's international obligations, but also you know has a, a really strong moral underpinning that we should help people who find themselves in strife around the world. This program, the permanent skill program, it is really about you know the economics. It's about maximising the well-being of the Australian community by picking people that are going to do a succeed in Australia, and we we you know we're pretty unashamed about that. So when we think about migration policy, what we're trying to do with this program is maximise the well-being of the Australian community. So that we think about that as both citizens and permanent residents in Australia, people with an enduring connection to Australia. You know, in a past life, I did work at the World Bank, and we thought a lot about migrate about aid policy. And in that world, um, you know, having a lot of people come to Australia or come to move to um, wealthy countries would probably increase their well-being. But that's not what the government's objective is when it comes to migration policy, and it's not really how we see the role of migration policy in Australia. You know, it is about what maximising the well-being of the Australian community. And so that means looking at, okay, well, what are the ways in which migrants affect the incumbent population? Um, you know, the big ones when we think of the economics is really these fiscal effects. Like they, ha they can have very big impacts on um, the, the fiscal economic resources available to incumbent Australians, basically because they pay a lot of tax. Um, they don't pay, spend, a, don't draw as much on, on services and on um, public benefits because they tend to arrive, you know, when they're fairly young. Their education is paid for abroad. And so they provide a fiscal dividend potentially to the Australian community um, over time. And so we think when we're, we're prioritising permanent skilled migrants, we are really looking at younger skilled migrants who with valuable skills that are going to succeed in earning high incomes in Australia. That really is the objective of the program. Uh, other considerations like, you know, how does migration affect the wages of Australians? You know, it depends on the particular context, but it seems to be at the aggregate in Australia and around the world that the overall impact of migrants on wages is pretty small. It's pretty negligible. Um, migration can have bigger impacts if it's concentrated, you know, amongst certain sort of sub-markets of the, of the labour market um, where it can have bigger impacts, but certainly overall it doesn't appear to have that bigger effect. And there's potentially some benefits if you get higher skilled migrants that they're going to lead to some productivity spillovers. So you're going to get benefits to the Australian community arising from, you know, migrants bringing in expertise, technologies, business processes from abroad. So while the focus, the focus here is the economic benefits that migrants provide to the incumbent population. So it's not just about the fact that migration boosts GDP. You have more people. Those people have high incomes because they'll capture a lot of that benefit themselves. It's about the spillover benefits they're going to have on the community. And those benefits tend to largely you know, be fiscal. The other effects exist, but they don't appear to be particularly big, which leads you to focus on younger skilled migrants because that's what's going to maximise those fiscal gains. Yeah, and I think it's really important to set the scope before we start talking about it because this is a rather specific uh, report. We can't look at the whole of migration in just one report. Now, Will, I don't know a heap about migration myself. Where was skilled migration at before COVID-19 and how do we select skilled migrants to Australia? Before COVID, kind of, Pam, you shook everything up, uh, Australia had a, a permanent migration intake of about 160,000, of which 110,000 were, were skilled migrants. Uh, this, this number, this 110,000, includes primary applicants, so the people who actually make the application, 
and then secondary applicants as well, like partners and kids that come up, come come with them. So roughly a third of these 110,000 people uh, were on employer-sponsored visas. So these are people with with a, a permanent visa that is sponsored by a valid employer via an employment contract. There are some conditions on this, so they have to be less than 45 years old, um, and in fact, most are kind of in their late 20s and early 30s. They have to be paid in line with the Australian market wage for that type of job. And that has to be at least $53,900. Now, on top of this, there's about 60% of the program, the school permanent migration program, went to migrants via a points test. And these were either selected by the Department of Home Affairs um, or by state governments for state or regional places. So the rest, which is about 5%, went to business investment places uh, via the Business Investment and Innovation Program or BIP. These are visas dedicated to people who, who can either invest large sum of money in Australian assets, about $5 million, or who are going to buy and run a business in Australia. But since COVID, these kind of proportions have changed. We've got now a greater share of places that are being reserved for business investment, about 15% instead of five. And there is a new category that's emerged, which is global talent, which seeks to identify talented individuals from around the world and bring them into Australia. And that now takes up about 15%. These spots have come at the expense of other more traditional skills-based permanent visa classes like employer sponsorship and points. Thanks for that, Will. And I think we'll get into each of those types of visas in a minute. The first one I want to talk about, Brendan, is one of your recommendations is to abolish the Business Investment and Innovation Visa Program, the BIP. What's the issue here? Because I feel like investment is something Australia needs right now in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis. Yeah, Kat, it's a fair question. So, you know, what we are recommending essentially is shifting away from those business investment innovation visas and taking those places and giving them more to the skilled worker programs like employer sponsorship and points. And the reason is pretty simple. When you look at the numbers about how well people are doing on those visas when they come to Australia, you know, they don't look very good. You know, so a lot of BIP visa holders, they typically have very low income. So something like half of all business investment innovation visa holders have incomes less than $25,000. You know, half of them have speak English, not at all or not very well. You know, half of them are over the age of 45. So if you think of the cohorts that you worried about or the things you're trying to prioritize, they look pretty bad. Now, so those those effects, those th- the effects are worth just, you know, if you think about how much people are going to pay in personal income tax and other taxes over their lives, you know, that's several hundred thousand dollars alone in extra cost of those visas versus if you take in the same person, instead of giving that visa to a business investment visa holder, you'd instead given it to someone who's a younger skilled worker through the points test or employer sponsorship. Now, you could make the case that there's potentially some benefits to investment. Uh, you know, at the margins, you might see a little bit more investment as a result of these people coming to Australia. If you think of the different cohorts, you know, you've got significant investors are supposed to invest $5 million. The bulk of that, you know, can often end up in something like a New South Wales Treasury bond. You've got investors that have to invest $1.5 million. The same thing does tend to happen. Those flows don't look like they're probably adding much to capital investment in Australia. And more broadly, you know, Australia is a medium-sized economy with really good access to capital markets. So most of the time, if you bring in people who are going to invest in those assets, what you're probably doing is just having other people not buy those assets in Australia, and there's not much of an impact on investment. Now, the reason why you might be surprised that the incomes are so low for that cohort, but it's because the the bulk of the cohort are coming in under the what are these uh, innovation visas, something like 70%. 
And the idea is you buy a business in Australia, as Will said, it has to be subject to a minimum turnover. The turnover limit is, I think, is $800,000. And then you need to hold that business for, say, three years before you get your permanent visa. And the idea is that you're then, you know, providing knowledge transfer. You're helping, you're starting up a business that's going to be innovative. It's going to employ Australians. It's going to do, have those benefits. What we tend to find, though, is because the visa holders tend to be pretty old and they tend not to have great English and they don't tend to have great skills. So most, half of them essentially don't have a bachelor's degree. You're probably not, and they're not really buying businesses that are going to really add to innovative capacity in Australia. So, you know, the idea of adding to innovation is a good idea. Uh, but the mechanism we're using here really isn't working and it's having really big costs in terms of the older age, the lower skills, the lower incomes of that cohort. If you are worried about innovation, well, you know, the evidence says that if you want innovation, you probably should focus on younger, highly skilled migrants um, who, you know, have valuable skills. And that's literally what the points test and employer sponsored do. So we estimate that if you if you drop those point, if you drop those visas out of the business investment stream, you put them instead in those other streams, those skill worker streams. You know the fiscal benefits alone are at least, you know, at least three point seven billion dollars a year, and probably a lot more. Uh, and I'm sure Will's, Will's going to talk about that in a little bit more detail later. Yeah, and we'll get to that in a second. The other thing I want to just touch on briefly is that the report highlights the global talent program, which has increased at a rapid pace. But it's concerning that the federal government are using an untested approach to selecting applicants. How does this pass muster? So the question with global talent really is how is it grown so quickly and what confidence do, should we have that the program is working well? Because obviously every person that you're adding, you're recruiting through the global talent scheme is someone that you're not recruiting through these other streams with a really proven track record of 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 attracting people to Australia who, te who tend to succeed economically and generate those benefits down the line for the community. So Global Talent started with a 1,000 visa pilot two years ago. It was increased to 5,000. It was then increased in the planning levels for this year to 15,000, although the department, you know, literally in the last couple of days has said, no, they're going to actually aim for 11,000. And the issue here is it's really unproven. So what it essentially involves is going out and trying to find globally talented individuals. That's a really worthwhile objective. The visa also doesn't have a lot of the restrictions on it in terms of, you know, what occupations people have to be in that some of the other visas like the points tested and the employer-sponsored visas have, which are things that we also think should change. Um, and so, you know, that's a great idea, but can you find 11,000 globally talented, 15,000 globally talented people through this stream? We don't have really very much information about how well it's working today. There's a small subset of people who have come through the stream who do tend look like they have pretty high incomes. Um, but essentially, it, allow, it gives the bureaucracy enormous flexibility and enormous discretion about who we select for these visas. And so is that, in fact, a good idea to operate at that level of scale? Um, and we'll, so what we think is we, we, we're, we're unconvinced that that's the right approach. Uh, so we would recommend scaling that visa back to 5,000, no more than 5,000 visas a year uh, and evaluating it and actually getting some information about how well it's working before we commit such a big part of the program to this visa going forward. Because as we said at the front, up front, if you if you make mistakes here, the people who you select to come on permanent visas to Australia, you see them in the labor market for another 30 to 40 years. So if we make poor choices, whether it be on business investment visas or on the global talent, we're going to wear the cost of those for a long time. Now, if it turns out the visa is working well 
and the data supports that that hypothesis, then yes, you can look at how whether you expand it. You can you can maintain the program, but we really shouldn't be making such a dramatic change to the program without having done an assessment, including of the initial pilot, which is basically what's happened. So turning to something you touched on in in your response there. You recommend that these extra visas should be instead allocated through the skilled worker programs, um, that of employer sponsorship and the points test. But how should these programs also change? I'll go to you first, Will. So again, good good question. The employer sponsorship program uh, has really, really good outcomes. We see that in the data already. Um, But at the moment, to be eligible for an employer sponsorship, you have to have a contract. Uh, for a job that's on, for an occupation that's on the medium and long-term strategic skills list. This is a list that's now developed by the National Skills Commission and, and it's finalised by the Department of Home Affairs. The list has, in the, at least in the past, been targeted towards medium-term skills shortages, uh, you know, so something as a shortage that's expected to last about four years. And it's reviewed every year in a process uh, that is largely driven by stakeholder consultations. So asking industry about, about labor, market, labor market conditions. This system is really is suboptimal um, for, for a few reasons. Uh, first, we shouldn't target permanent skilled migration. As Brendan said, like, these are people who are going to be in Australia working for 40 or so years. Um, we sh- they shouldn't be targeted at skill shortages. We need to think longer term than that. The second is using, uh, we currently use a, a static occupation list. We use the Australian and New Zealand standard classification of occupations, which is not purpose built for this, uh, for, for migration policy. Um, it, it's, and it's static, uh, kind of by design, you know, it was last updated in 2013. And this means that it's going to miss new, you know, up and coming occupations that employers will not be able to fill spots in. So the, the most recent high demand occupation missing from ANSCO is a data scientist. You know, they're becoming a core occupation for, for, for businesses around Australia. Um, and it's just not on the ANSCO list. And so the ABS runs the ANSCO, uh, had to re- provide specific advice in, in 2019 to say that, well, data scientists is classified in this subgroup in ANSCO. The department then allowed people to be, um, uh, sorry, would then then put data scientists uh, on on the list. It's kind of it's a suboptimal system. It's not agile. And the third is also if you look at occupations um, as as a whole. So as a single occupation, it has a, a diversified um, group of jobs within it. You know, there are, for instance, solicitors, uh, uh, for example. There are about 40,000 full-time solicitors um, in, in Australia. Half of these people are, are on uh, jobs that pay more than $120,000 a year, so really, really high income. But a quarter had incomes below 80000 so b- below the full-time medium wage. Um, this diversity within a single occupation means that where you target, uh, you, you target your permanent skilled migration by occupation, you're actually targeting at at low-income jobs or some some low-income jobs. And we think a better way around this is to kind of abandon this permanent skilled migration, the concept of a skilled list, and instead go with wage. So if there is an occupation, if you have a contract, uh, a contract that uh, for, for a job that's going to pay more than $80,000 above the full-time median income, then that job is eligible for employer sponsorship. Of course, you'd have to kind of maintain all the checks and balances that the Department of Home, Home Affairs conducts. 
you know, the wage would have to be in, in line with, with what other similar workers uh, are being paid for that job. But we can kind of do away with the skills list, replace it with a wage. Uh, uh, it would naturally make, make the list more, more agile and make employer sponsorship simpler for both the employer and, and for the potential migrant. Thanks, Will. And I did note that in the report, um, the mention of the data scientist. And I thought, I thought this was part of your advocacy to get more data scientists into Australia. So, Brendan, what do you recommend for points-tested visas? So, Kat, we think these visas are working pretty well in general, as as we've both said. They're people attending to earn high incomes. They tend to be to have to come to Australia at relatively young ages, and therefore that's going to create those benefits we want for the Australian community. Um, but we can do better. So there's a couple of issues with how the points test works at the moment. One is like employer sponsorship, it is relying on these occupation lists. But unlike employer sponsorship, you can't just replace those occupation lists with a wage threshold because the whole idea of a points tested visa is you don't have to come to Australia with a job. Instead, what we're really doing with the points tested visa is we're just getting a lot of young, skilled people getting them to come to Australia and then seeing how they do when they get here. And we find that they do pretty well. It's basically importing human capital. So what we instead recommend is we should do a review. That review should look at, can you replace an occupation list in the, for points tested visas with something like a direct education approach? Just say, as long as you've got a, a bachelor's degree, then you're going to go through the whole points tested process and we're going to select people with the highest points, you know, each time. There are also issues around, you know, how the points test has become pretty bloated. There's, there's some factors in there that don't look like they're, they're actually helping you select the best people. You know, so there are points for regional study. There are points for domestic study, which is a really challenging one. You know, there's this idea of doing a professional year, which is something that really only visa holders do. And they're essentially extra education that's run by different, co different groups in Australia, professional bodies. Uh, that doesn't look like it's adding much to uh, migrant skills. Uh, but And these, these points-tested visas, these extra points for regional visas, for everything else, they do look like they're moving us away from where we want to be. And so what we would recommend is do a review of the system, see how it goes. Uh, you get the data basically on everyone who is who on the points that people have, you get the data on the outcomes, and we probably can reconsider and reweight the entire points test to get much better outcomes than we do currently. But it's just not something that we have the information to do ourselves today. And the points test itself, look, it hasn't been reviewed since at least 2006. Uh, and therefore, it's, it's probably about time that we look at it, given how important it is. So, Brendan, I'm really curious how this will affect sectors like aged care, where there is a need for skilled workers, but roles are paid less than $80,000 a year. Yeah, this is a really interesting question because a lot of the public narrative, the discussion about, about migration now is, the, is focused on, you know, okay, well, how do we bring in people to Australia to fulfil these roles, particularly in care sectors? And the underlying presumption is, well, there are shortages in these sectors. But, you know, as you just mentioned, like the wages that are where we're paying people in these sectors aren't particularly high, uh, which begs the question, well, if they're in demand, why aren't they higher? And... You know, if you think the issue here is that government is often the employer or at least the funder of services across aged care, across healthcare, across childcare uh, and disability care. And so if, if we're going to pay more for people uh, in order to get more people to work in those sectors in Australia, you will have to pay more. Um, and that's obviously an issue for governments that are worried about the long-term costs of these services, particularly aged care, as we've had on this podcast before with Stephen and Annika talking about the fact that aged care costs are going to rise with an ageing population. Now, the challenge here is 
if you don't historically when we've had big shifts in in the where people have worked in the in the workforce uh, in the shifts in the industry composition of the workforce from agriculture into manufacturing from manufacturing to services the way that we did do it was with changes in in relative wages that's what encouraged people to move to the cities work in manufacturing work in services now the temptation here will be okay well we can deal with this problem instead with with migration and to a degree we may choose to do it with temporary migration what we would say when it comes to this report is you should not be prioritizing someone who's going to earn a relatively low income say it might be fifty five thousand dollars a year to work in an aged care sector over someone who's going to earn eighty thousand dollars doing an ict job because what you're doing there is the government is reducing its upfront costs of of the fiscal costs of funding say aged care but it's doing it in a way that has a really big shadow tax which is you're giving up the, the, all the extra fiscal benefit of that person who earns an extra $25,000 each and every year of their life for 40 years. You add up those numbers and that tax, that shadow tax is really quite large. So we kind of have three choices here. You either pay Australians more to do those jobs. Uh, that will come at an immediate short-term fiscal cost. We can choose to have temporary migrants do those jobs instead. Uh, and, and not raise the wages. Mind you, that also means not raising the wages of the Australians who also do those jobs as well, um, where you then have a challenge of, okay, will those people get to permanent residency? And we would say no. Um, and if you are going to give them permanent residency, it would have a really big cost to the community relative to that same visa being issued to someone else. So we've got some really tough choices ahead of us. Uh, we are going to look at temporary migration for a future report. But we don't think that you should be prioritising lower skill, lower wage jobs for care services if it's coming at a big cost to the community in the long run. So that leads me to our final question for today, and that's to you, Will. What are the flow-on effects of getting this right? So the flow-on effects are substantial, as Brendan has kind of touched on. Because we're talking about permanent skilled migration. These are people who arrive in Australia in their 20s or their 30s, um, some a little bit older, uh, and they stick around. They work until they retire, maybe in their mid-late 60s. Um, so that's a number of years earning, uh, earning a wage and paying tax. And there are two big things that will determine how much tax, uh, how, like the contrib tax contribution these, uh, that this, uh, a migrant cohort will make to the Australian fiscal balance. That's how old they are when they arrive in Australia and how much they earn in each year uh, that they're working. So kind of we can add up all these things and do some, do some calculations, which we have done to say for a given cohort, how much, how much lifetime tax are they expected to pay? Um, and, and we ran this for the government's um, proposed 2021 financial year, this, this year's um, planning levels for permanent migration, where they have increased BIP, uh, the, the business investment visas at the expense of other visas which tend to be younger um, and more high paid and that the estimated lifetime tax paid is going to be two billion less so we're going to each each cohort each year we're going to receive two billion dollars less um, because of the government's current changes but that we can fix that we, like, we can change you know from next year onwards we can change how um, how these cohorts look and if we implement some of Grattan's recommendations for example abolishing the investor stream altogether, that's going to add about $4 billion uh, to lifetime tax paid for this, co for this cohort. If we then also use, instead of occupation lists, an $80,000 $80, wage threshold just for that employer-sponsored uh, primary applicant group, 
we can add about $9 billion in lifetime tax paid for that cohort. So these will be, you know, benefits to the Australian community. It means people in Australia will have more government services for less tax paid um, just by tweaking not the number of people coming in, but the composition. Um, it's, it's really substantial effects. And if we think about this in the context of an intergenerational report that we're going to have to deal with next month, uh, it's going to show that there's going to probably be, we expect it will show, there's still a long-term challenge of funding government in the age of an aging population. So services like aged care are going to increase as a share of GDP and there'll be fewer younger Australians to pay for those. Add on top of that the costs of COVID and this seems like a really obvious place in terms of fixing our permanent skilled migrant intake of picking up um, a really big long-term fiscal benefit that will help offset those costs and at really relatively little cost to the Australian community today. You know, this is, these are big benefits that are being left on the sidewalk that we're not picking up, big bills, uh, and really we should try to pick them up and try to improve, you know, the migration program, particularly to get those fiscal benefits for the Australian community. Thanks so much, Brendan and Will. It's a complex topic and one I encourage you to delve into more deeply uh, by reading the report that is available for free on our website at grattan.edu.au. Before I finish, I'd also like to mention that Grattan is a not-for-profit organisation and we're currently in the middle of our end-of-year financial giving campaign. If you enjoy this podcast and want to keep it going, can I ask that you donate at grattan.edu.au forward slash donate. I'd also like to acknowledge the support we've received from the Susan McKinnon Foundation who helped fund this report. Migration hasn't been a core part of Grattan's work program until now and it's a great example of the kind of work we can do with the additional support. So we'd like to thank you very much for that support. If you'd like to continue the conversation with us on social media, you can find us at Grattan Inst on Twitter and Grattan Institute on all other social media channels. Finally, I'd just like to say thank you so much for listening again and take care. <laughs> <laughs>